and welcome to Cultural Capital. This is the second in of our special Melbourne International Film Festival dispatches. Last week we were in the hustle of the MIF Festival Hub. This week we're back in the quietest surrounds of Melbourne University. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. I'm Eloise Ross. And joining us this week is a very special guest, film critic, writer, author and writer in residence at the University of Technology, Sydney. It's Amwyn Crawford. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. It's amazing to be back after a year at MIF and at Cultural Capital. Um, this week we'll be picking our highlights from the festival so far and dropping some warnings about films to avoid. So let's begin with a film that three of the four of us have seen, the documentary Dawson City, Frozen Time. Located just south of the Arctic Circle, the one-time Canadian gold rush town of Dawson City was home to an incredible discovery in 1978. Over 500 nitrate films from the silent era, preserved in the frozen ground where they'd been buried, presumed lost at the end of the 1920s. Film essayist Bill Morrison forms a revelatory history of both Dawson City and American cinema using the nitrate footage as a rapturous montage set to a score by Sigur collaborator Alex Summers. The Myth Guide describes it as a dreamscape of films past that no cinephile will want to miss. Was this your impression, Eloise? Absolutely. Actually, I'm really happy that you just said the score was by Alex Summers because the score was beautiful um, and kind of assisted the film along. But if anyone is interested in film history, then totally go and see this. I mean, Bill Morrison has a history of making films that are really invested in film history um, and also other histories. I mean, he's made other films, particularly uh, The Great Flood, about the 1927 flood in Mississippi. But he will always use film history as a material artefact to create his moving images. Um, and that's what's really amazing about him. So I think seeing them is just a, a real treat because we see things that are, have been missing for, for so long. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, the score was actually one of the few things, notes against this film for me. I, it was a lovely score, but I found it a little perhaps bombastic at times. But the film as a whole is really smart, I think, and it takes a lot of winding tangential paths at times and you don't necessarily know how it's going to link back into this main narrative thread about this amazing treasure house of films that came up from the earth in Dawson City. But eventually all these things connect together and I really loved the the way in which it was a history of filmmaking, a history of the gold rush and really a history of how those two things are interconnected, particularly the connections between Hollywood and the gold rush and the way in which one financed the other and vice yes. versa. It was really smart. I loved learning that the bankers were the people who owned the movie houses in Dawson City and yes. presumably in other cities as well. Yeah, I didn't know that, so that was quite fascinating. Yeah, there was a lot of really interesting com- uh, connections with the larger community, like the way that the cinema was at the Dawson Amateur Athletics uh, Centre and there was a lot of crossover with the swimming pool that got frozen and turned into a ice hockey rink that later plays a very key role in the 
rediscovery of these. I love those really banal observations that it was hard to play ice hockey because there was just like a lump in the ice because there was some film buried underneath. (laughs) Like no one thought to do anything about it for however long. Yeah, yeah, it was was fascinating. It was amazing um, to see the documentary footage of the town itself and to see how – and just to learn more about the history of it because it is a really unusual story, almost like a Las Vegas in the Arctic that it began like in this gold rush and then got attracted to all these casinos and theatres and it became this entertainment hub of the north. Yeah, that's really true. I did find, I mean, you know, Anne, when you mentioned that it's like had a kind of a couple of interconnecting kind of trails that all came together in the in the end, I did feel like I wanted the element of the film discovery to be brought in a bit earlier because the last 20 minutes like I was just tingling all over because I was thinking about how incredible this discovery was and how amazing it would be to find these films and the fact that films that had been missing since the 1920s had been discovered and if that was part of it earlier um, I mean I know it was a history of the city itself but if that was part of it earlier I feel like I could have I don't know, being kind of more engaged or that that feeling would have been sustained for even longer. Yeah, because it kind of starts there. It, it starts with them discovering the film, but then it takes a long time to get back yeah, to I'd that Yeah, I've forgotten point. all about those two people who were interviewed at the beginning. Mm, that's right, yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, the only talking yeah. heads in the whole thing, really. Yeah. And yeah. also I, was, I thought it was quite interesting that the whole thing begins with a clip of him on this show, this baseball show, talking about the discovery of the 1919 famously fixed match. World Series that I think forms the basis of Eight Men Out, the John Sayles movie. Right, yeah, for him to include foot news footage of himself yeah, making really the film move, yeah. in the film was, yeah, really but quite all, yeah, interesting. But, but also interesting, I mean, I guess the film is called Dawson City Frozen Time and in some ways it's about the unravelling of, of history and of the unravelling of, of frozen time, I suppose, and him putting himself and the moment into the film kind of is this really interesting connection yeah. to his own narrative. Yeah, but I thought it could have – we didn't need a 10-minute deviation into the baseball story that <laughs> was like at the centre of the movie that I think was only there because it tied back into the very beginning. I'm sure it's like it's an amazing thing to have discovered this footage of this fixed match that nobody knew this you know, this footage existed. But, uh, uh, yeah, it did seem to be the furthest out tangential thread that was pulled back into the into the story. I think so, yeah. For a film with Frozen in the title, it's so much about fire. Uh, th- th- that's one of the things I loved about the film. It's about this incredibly combustible form of film, nitrate film, and it's about all these fires which happen in various places, partly because of combustible nitrate yeah. film. <laughs> Um, or the fact that the town got burned down every year for nine years in a row. Yes, years. yeah, and yeah. and even this incredible footage that we see of these films that were dug out of the ground look as if they're burnt. It's water damage, but I think that's one of the really lovely things about this film is that these water damaged films actually look like they've been set on fire once they're put back through. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about Bill Morrison, and he will make films about. That, that are kind of you watch films being set on fire on screen and that's part of his process of mm. making cinema and I really love that about him and I really enjoy watching that even if you know it's a damaged film 
something really beautiful about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I tweeted afterwards in my like little pithy tweet review. I tweeted, it's a film about fire and ice, about destructive loss and exciting preservation, which it totally is, you know. Yeah. I did see that tweet on the, on the, the pink screen. Oh, on the pink screen. Like that day. I was, I'm, I'm famous. <laughs> you are. <laughs> so despite being a sold out session, there are no more screenings of Dawson City Frozen Time at MIF, but it is a film I could see reappearing at Acme or somewhere else further down the track. Hopefully. Definitely. Come with me, I want to show you something. Let's look closely. They're amazing. Would you like a job? Yeah, yeah, sure. I checked out the Butterfly Tree. This is was supported through the Myth Premiere Fund. Queensland filmmaker Priscilla Cameron's debut feature is a mostly tepid drama about three lost souls in small-town Queensland. Um, Melissa George stars as a former burlesque dancer who shows up one day in this small town. Ewan Leslie plays the man who sort of falls for her, uh, but then he's also having an affair with his student, his teachers in high school. And Ed Oxenbold plays his son, who also falls for the Melissa George character as well in this weird half maternal, half sexual kind of way. The f- distinctive thing about this film is that as they say, visually luminous or visually distinctive. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, quite nice colour in the film, a lot of that sort of magical realism stuff. So the Melissa George character, you know, she's sort of like this idolised beautiful figure in the film for both the boy and the um, father. And so she, you know, sprouts these gorgeous blue butterfly wings at times and, you know, all this slightly surreal imagery comes into play, um, which is nice enough. Uh, however, I did think sort of what what was the point, what was driving that beyond a sort of quite banal exploration of one man's sort of, you know, midlife crisis, essentially. I mean, they all, all, all the three figures have problems and they sort of, you know, resolve them through the course of the film. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's, it's the, the imagery is quite nice, but beyond that, I don't think there was much to the film, I've got to say. Yeah, that's, I don't think that's screening again at MIFF. But yeah, nice to see Melissa George on an Australian film again. And it did make good use of it, sort of, it, it made a lot of use of, and this is what made it quite a strange film in many ways, because it's a low budget film. They purposefully constructed this um, butterfly, oh, what is that, sort of like a hothouse. And you know, that was quite interesting, but I was a bit sick of that space by the end of the film, I've got to say. So that was, Anders, that seems to be your least favourite film that you've seen. Um, yeah. Eloise, what, tell me about your least favourite film of Myth so far. Oh, my least favourite. I didn't want to do it this way. I wanted... <laughs> okay. um, Please start I wanted off with a positive if you prefer. I Andy to um, go into it first. But my least favourite, I'm really, really disappointed to say, was Todd Haynes's Wonderstruck. So Wonderstruck is the story of about this 11-year-old boy called Ben who grows up in a small town called Gunflint, Minnesota. And his uh, mother has just died recently in an um, automobile accident and he doesn't know who his father is and he becomes obsessed with finding the identity of his father. And this story is entwined with a story of a young girl coming from Hoboken in New Jersey in 1927. 
and her mother is a famous theatre actress. She leaves her father to find her mother and then finds a larger family in New York. Yeah, so, so it's it, like a modern it is, fairy tale. It is worth mentioning the pedigree of this film. You know, Todd Haynes is, you know, Cinephile's favourite, film Twitter's favourite director. Last made Carol. Yeah. Carol. Yeah. Amazing um, queer romance with Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. Yes, and so the expectations were high. Julianne Moore is was is like listed as the starring. She is listed as the star, and what's really interesting about this and kind of infuriating is that Julianne Moore is not really the star. She's not really in it until maybe she's kind of appears, and then she's not in it till the last ten minutes, and then she kind of becomes the star. I suppose you could say, but what infuriates me is that. Maybe this is a kids' movie, although Anna and I really aren't sure whether it works that way. Maybe it's a kids' movie, and I have seen people say that, but it's not marketed as one. It's marketed as, like, Todd Haynes' new amazing film with Julianne Moore, who was in his safe previously. Very different film. I mean, I'm not saying that all directors need to make the same film over and over, but to make... I don't know, I just feel like you're going to make people disappointed if you market a film like this, and then it's just a really bland really slow film about two kids that that is not appealing at all i was really really bored and i have a whole lot to say about why but andy do you want to tell us well i why loved it i thought it was wonderful it? i think it's one of my favorite films i've seen at myth i thought it was a really rare example of a modern fairy tale that t- took really interesting directions it had it, i know it lured me into thinking it was going to go one way and then went a few different ways there was a lot of period where I just didn't realise what was going on, but I, it was so luminously and beautifully put together. There was a lot of use of models and like architectural designs of New York that become quite important. There's uh, tokens, like this book that seems to move through time. Um, there's shifting addresses. There's pe- these kids are kind of lost in a city. New York is rendered in a really interesting way, I thought, in the 1920s compared to 1970s, which <coughs> was very, very realistic. I was sitting next to somebody who was expounding on how realistic it was because he lived in New York in, in that era, and he said it was really, really strange to seeing how... Mm. Mm. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. You know, that's all very, you know, easy to do and definitely part of Todd Haynes's, um, you know. Yeah, Carol was. Well, yeah, I was going to say shtick and then I was like, is that a bit crude? I don't know. Anyway, but yeah, you know, that's all really beautiful. What really irritated me, one of the things was you mentioned the use of models. So at the end there's... There are quite a, a few, you know, kind of just tokens of, of children's filmmaking, fairy tale stories that are that are really great. You know, the use of the book, the use of the model, the use of nightmare, animal in nightmare symbol. But in, in occasionally, I don't know if you noticed, but in an early sequence where one of them was looking at New York, there was, they were looking at, uh, you know, a real New York and then something was intercut and I realised later it was an image of the model of New York that appears mm, later. Yeah. But there was no explanation for it. And so I was just thinking, why is this here? For me, until I realised at the end that we got to that point, I just thought it was a really, really poorly rendered image. And that was all really silly to me. I didn't understand any of any okay. of that. It didn't do anything for the, for the magic of the moment. I don't think we've mentioned so far that Wonderstruck is based on a book by Brian Selznick, who also wrote Hugo, which was made into the Scorsese, the Martin Scorsese film. And yeah, like Eloise, I was unconvinced by this film. And I am a big Todd Haynes fan. And the thing was, the, the thing that didn't work for me, well, there were many things that didn't work for me about this film, but as far as I'm concerned, and I say this as someone who loves Todd Haynes, but he's... He's a, he's a vibes man. You know, Todd Haynes does atmosphere. Todd Haynes is not very good at plot. 
and this film really got lost and bogged down in the exposition so much so that a lot of the exposition was literally written out on paper there were letters there were notes the two main child characters in the film well one of them is deaf the other one goes deaf but may only be temporarily deaf neither is played by a deaf actor and the, i was the girl the girl is, is? okay yeah, my mistake she she's a deaf she's a deaf Millicent person mm. the boy was not however the boy was not he became deaf he, during the narrative he does and i was pretty unconvinced by that well, i think that's the fairy tale nature i have to talk like a lightning strikes a telephone call in 1977 and... Do you know what I was thinking during this film, and I'm really sorry to say it, but I'm like, Home Alone 2 Lost in New York is, like, miles better than this. You know what I was thinking? (laughs) I was thinking Todd Haynes does Night at the Museum, and I would probably (laughs) prefer... I think kids would probably get more out of Night at the Museum. I I mean, the two stories, 1927 and then 1977, they are intertwined, and you don't realise why until the end. Maybe there is some magic in it because Andy said that you thought it could go in a few different directions. I kind of knew from the beginning where it was going to go because there are a number of signs um, as to to how they're interlinked. But it just wasn't really convincing that they were interlinked. The, the factors that, that make them so are, are really, I don't know, just vaguely sketched. The characters aren't... Yeah, the the kind of extraneous characters, which are very important to the narrative, as we find at the end, aren't aren't portrayed well enough to make it convincing that the ending is in fact the ending. Mm. I just want to say what really annoyed me. Well, I have two more things to say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everyone. So one of them was the fact that this film is uh, half silent. So the 1927 um, segment is filmed in black and white. Not a very good-looking black and white, mm. I want to say. Um, I agree. And it's filmed like a silent film. So uh, musical accompaniment, filmed like a silent film. and Fantastic score by Carter Burwell. I hated section. the score. No, oh, I was humming it on my bike on the way home and See? it morphed Works. into um, Lady Gaga's Bad Romance. That's cool too. I'm like, there's a lot of chord progressions similar, but I really didn't like the score and I thought that there was too much of it. Too much score. Film about, like, you know, um, hearing-impaired people – have some silence, like give give us some time to understand what's going on. There was really inconsistent use of perspectival hearing and listening in this film. Yes, that's why maybe, I was unconvinced. Yeah, maybe Anwen had the same f- feeling, but so the the boy goes deaf when he's on the phone during a thunderstorm and then you have this moment where he can't hear anything when he is in the hospital bed anyway and then he sleeps and then he wakes up and there's a cut to the exterior with a bus because he kind of wants to go and you already know in the narrative he wants to go and look for his father so they cut to an exterior with a bus and you hear the sounds of the bus and then it cuts back and the the sound continues and so it seems as though Todd Haynes is telling us that he can hear the sound of the bus and that he's thinking, I'm going to go and get on the bus. And so I was like, well, he's only temporarily deaf at the moment of the lightning strike and then it's settled down. But that's not the case because he goes to New York and you realise that he still can't hear anything. And I'm just like, where is this consistency? Like, mm-hmm. how are you treating your audience in terms of understanding what this kid is going through? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that's why I found it unconvincing. I was prepared to go with the 
convoluted lightning strike accident, but the inconsistency of the sound and and of as you said the the perspective that we're getting on the mm. sound really annoyed me a lot. And, and then it went back and forth. It did it go back and to, forth. You know, because yeah. it, it went through the perspectives of hearing and non hearing characters, so it had yeah. to do that. But I found it really really not a good no, kind it didn't of bother me at all. I sense. thought it was just part of the necessity to show that it was different from 1927, in which case it was basically a silent film, like you were saying. It was but shot it was totally different from 1927, but also the boys' hearing was different from the rest of the cast hearing, and so I don't mm-hmm. think that was done very well at all. And I just thought that the two stories were, the way the film was edited, there were all these really clunky match cuts and it was just mm-hmm. edited in, and in, in a, I, I, th- I thought the two stories kind of, in terms of the exposition and the plot, converged in a way that, that was obvious, but also the way the film was put together made the connections between the two stories much too laboured for my liking. And for a Todd Haynes film, I must say that this film didn't look nearly as good. as I was unconvinced by the black and white mm. section. Mm. It was a bad-looking black and white. I didn't even think that it was that convincing as a kind of homage to, to silent film. Yeah. It was shot by Edward Lackman, who also shot Carol, which is a gorgeous-looking film. I didn't think this was anywhere near on that level in terms of cinematography. Yeah. Yeah, look, I'm sorry. Todd Haynes has made a dud as far as I am concerned. I also want to say this, just and my uh, our listeners can please correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the young girl in 1927 goes to the movies and she watches a silent film. Um, and she's um, taken in by the magic, you know, as people were and as we can be, as we've evidenced. But she goes out and she looks at some signs and you don't know at this stage that she can't, that she's deaf. But she looks at a lot of signs saying, we're updating our cinema for sound pictures, all talking, you know, all of these advertisements for sound pictures. And I'm... Like, I'm just not convinced that in Hoboken, New Jersey, in 1927, theatres would have been converting to sound pictures at that time. Like, they, you know, didn't really convert until mid-1928 in large cities like New York City and, like, Los Angeles at this point. I don't know about Hoboken, New Jersey. Anyway, I was just really unconvinced by that point. And I'm like, I'm sure Todd Haynes has done his research. So if anyone is listening and, like, knows anything about Hoboken specifically and can tell me that I'm wrong, please do. But that annoyed me. This is quite an interesting link back to the Bill Morrison film as well because there's a whole section in the Bill Morrison film about about converting to sound. It was 1931. Yeah, exactly and, and part thinking. of the reason that these nitrate films ended up literally buried in the ground is, is the conversion from silent to talkies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As a New York film too, and, you know, I'm a sucker for, for a good New York film, but one of the other things I found really laboured about uh, this Wonderstruck was the way in which it used two of the most obvious kind of New York attractions, the Natural History, the American Museum of Natural History and the Queen's Panorama in the mm. Queen's Museum, which are, uh, yeah. Oh, do you know what, though? I immediately recognised the interior of the bookstore. That oh, yeah? In. Really? In case, really? Yeah, it's, uh, I think I did look it up because, and I saw some of the photos on Google Maps. It's it's opposite the bars um, on the Upper West oh, yeah. Side on Broadway. I was like, I've been there. Yeah, it's a very um, cool bookstore. Yeah, so <laughs> that was cool. That made me excited. 
Sorry, Todd. Oh, no need to look. Sorry, yeah. Andy. Sorry, well, Andy. that's right. No, I think it's, it's opening uh, for wide release later in the year around Christmas time. And it, as far as I know, it's still comp- meant to be a part of the Oscars race. Yeah, um, look. Which is possible, but I think it was mainly because people were like, Todd Haynes is, was robbed for Carol. He's overdue. He's going to be getting a nod for something, even if it's a bit subpar. Well, maybe he will. I which mean, I don't think it is. I still think it's yeah. a <laughs> um, it, Maybe it's just not for us, which is a fault of its marketing. That's my opinion. Cool. Okay. Um, Anne, did you want to talk about one of your favourite films? Maybe, maybe we should uh, talk about BPM. Nous pouvons unir nos forces pour résister à l'épidémie et aux problèmes sociaux qu'elle engendre. Il faut inverser le rapport de force. C'est pas nous qui avons besoin des labos, c'est eux qui ont besoin de nous. Tu vois bien qu'on n'arrive pas à mobiliser les médias sur la question des traitements. So this film was the one that I was most looking forward to going into MIF. It was top of my list. It's directed by Robin Campillo, who made Eastern Boys a few years ago. And it won the Grand Jury Prize at Cannes this year, and it also won the Queer Palm. It's about two and a half hours long. It's a film set in the early 1990s, and it's about ACT UP in Paris, which Robin Campillo was a part of in those days. So ACT UP, as some of you, many of you may know, was an activist organisation originally founded in New York for people who were both HIV positive and who were otherwise affected by the AIDS crisis and who really wanted to take direct action on a number of fronts uh, about AIDS, which included direct action against politicians, pharmaceutical companies, media, uh, the church, all kinds of things. I really loved this film. It met my expectations, probably exceeded them. It's really full of energy. There are some really fabulous scenes, many scenes, in fact. We kind of return again and again in the film to this activist collective and their meetings and the kind of energy and dynamism of those scenes is really fantastic. It's this kind of ensemble cast. The film ends up... As it goes along, focusing more and more on one particular activist whose name is Sean, who's an HIV-positive man, and his his journey, I guess. I hate that word, journey. First word that came into my head. It's really, it's so full of energy and passion. It's beautifully edited. I believe Robin Campillo edited it himself as well as directing it and co-writing the script. It's pretty much the first film I've ever seen that's made me miss student activism, which is saying a lot. It actually made me nostalgic for sitting in interminable student activist meetings in which everybody's arguing with each other. I just think it's really beautiful. It's really funny for a film about such a serious topic. It's really funny. It's really sexy. I really loved it. And it is screening again, I believe, this Friday. Yep, 9pm. At 9pm at the Comedy Theatre. Andy, did you love it I as well? I loved it, yeah. I thought it was a really, really interesting mix of house music, which was like a key recurring musical motif, and the poignancy that I think a lot of people miss or forget or just don't associate with that sort of early dance music because there's yes. a sadness to it. There's some beautiful melodies that are kind of rendered on these fairly primitive synths over these fairly thin-sounding beats to these to 2017 you know, musical ears. Maybe it will sound like that. But to me, there's so much beauty in there, and this is, was really kind of... It, it, it even visually moved out on from the dance floor into the cells metastasizing. There's some gorgeous yes. visual, visual links. 
yeah. that really kind of pull this together. I mean, mm-hmm. it actually ties back to its original name, 120 BPM, which is the heart rate. Which is the heart rate. Resting human heart rate and, as well as um, yes, house music. As well mm-hmm. as house music, yeah. And I'm not sure why they why they chopped the 120 off the English translation of the title yeah, because either, it m- makes more sense. Yeah, and these beautiful edits where scenes from the dance floor, scenes from meetings and protests, sex scenes kind of all kind of get chopped together and... And then these more abstract, as you say, kind of cell images. Yeah, because the drama really comes out of just the love of the characters. Because obviously there's a huge empathy given between the writers and the characters. And the idea of having of falling in love with somebody who's HIV positive when you're not, yes. that's, that's a big part of it. And that actually becomes quite a large part of the last third. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a really interesting direction to take because you could have easily made this fairly hyperkinetic run, lola run, sort of high energy thing about, you know, full on activism, full on dance scenes, you know, sex scenes, all this sort of stuff. But instead, it pulls back to almost this romantic like those really really slow paced house drama where these when you know you're sitting down with these people while they're thinking and they're processing these huge emotional events and that was really beautiful as well because by the time we brought into that we know these people really well and there was a lot of very very emotionally moved people in the audience yeah absolutely there was a lot of sniffling Mm. happening yes and a lot of people fairly discomposed by the end um (laughs) in a a good way though and you're right there's a real shift in energy in the last third of this film and then in some ways we kind of cycle back to to where it began yeah it's really smart and i would strongly recommend it because i am not confident that it's going to get any other wider release eastern eastern boys had a very limited release here so if you can catch it at miff do Mm, definitely recommended is this the queerest myth ever um, it's up there. It certainly is. Well, my myth is definitely. I'm almost exclusively seeing LGBTIQ filmed cinema, uh, themed cinema. You already know my um, thoughts on uh, Call Me By Your Name, so um, <laughs> I, I won't go over old ground, but I will do a shout out to The Ornithologist, which is playing again on the afternoon of the 20th. Yao Pedro Rodriguez, I think he won Best director at Locarno for this um, film, which is a delightfully surreal queer pastoral is probably the best way to describe it, maybe. Rodriguez's collection of images is sort of vaguely reminiscent of the tale of St. Sebastian, who has been the subject of homoerotic artistic exploration before. I think um, I remember watching Derek Jarman made a film. Yeah, Sebastian. And it also sort of ties in with the travels of St. Anthony of Padua. And look, forgive me, I'm a bit hazy on my Catholic mythology, and I would really recommend maybe brushing up on these two tales, even if it's just Wikipedia, before you go in to see this film. So the plot, sort of such as it is, and this isn't a film really concerned with plot, but the film follows a hunky bird watcher in a forest. He encounters two Christian pilgrims from China. They strip him naked and tie him to a tree. He escapes, then runs into this uh, attractive mute named Jesus. And then animals, birds, the director himself, all sort of feature in increasingly surreal ways in the forest. So it's 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 more a collection of, of images and, and sort of set pieces, I guess, exploring faith and also sexuality and also like yeah that sort of pastoral idea of spiritual connection to to nature and how sex and spirituality and the wilderness can all be tied up together in some crazy um hodgepodge um concoction i just 
I loved how sort of warm the film feels. It's curious, it's sexy, it's funny, and it's spiritual. And it's just, it's really densely packed, but really also... I mean, I hate it when you say it's it's one thing, but actually it's the other. But it is. It's there's a lot in it, but also it feels very lightly done. Yeah, which to me suggests that Rodriguez knows exactly what he's doing, and he's doing it really well. Yeah, so I liked it a lot, and I'd recommend um, catching the next screening, yeah. which is the twentieth at four fifteen p.m. What's Friday? Sunday. Friday. Sunday. 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 I believe. Sunday yeah. afternoon. Yeah. Another of the many of this year's strong queer films at MIFF, which I really liked, but I believe, Anders, you didn't, was God's Own Country, which is out on general release fairly soon at the end of August. So this is a first-time feature film from Francis Lee, a British director. The film is set in Yorkshire, and it's about a young man named Johnny who works and lives on his father's sheep farm, uh, his father is quite ill. His father is played by the wonderful British character actor Ian Hart, who I always love to see pop up. And uh, his grandmother also lives on the farm, played by Gemma Jones. And they hire a temporary worker from Romania to kind of help them through. And Johnny and this guy, uh, Georgie, end up falling for each other. I thought it was really well done. I thought it was a really accomplished first film. I really loved the setting. One of the things I found smart about this film is that although it's set in the extremely picturesque and kind of wild Yorkshire rural countryside, we don't get a whole lot of, you know, big open landscape shots. It's actually very concentrated, a lot of close-ups. There's a lot of there's a lot to do with the actual work of the farm, a lot of real scenes of animals being born and various other things, which I thought were really well done. I, yeah, I was, I was really taken by it, but Anders, you were not so much taken by it. No, it it didn't. But I think maybe because I went into it sort of directly after the, sublime emotional experience of Call Me By Your Name, um, which was probably a bit unfair to the film. But I, to me, I felt it, it sort of lacked a bit of emotional texture, I guess. I, it was just a very serious film. And yes, it is very serious subject matter. But I thought the sort of attempts at humour didn't really work for me. Um, and I didn't... I, I'm not sure how I felt about the acting, actually, when I think about it. I There were times where I was sort of distanced from what was going on on screen. I wasn't emotionally investing in it, I guess. Having said that, it is an interesting story that is worth telling, I think. And, you know, he, yeah, I think he succeeds on that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's one of those kind of niches that I, I didn't realise needed filling until there was the film. Was mm. Gay sheep farmers in West Yorkshire, who knew that this film needed to be in my life? But, um, yeah, I, I, I like really liked it. And it will be out pretty soon. August yeah. 31st, I believe. Great. Um, speaking of queer films, I really liked uh, A Fantastic Woman by Sebastian Lelio. Uh, which is screening again on Wednesday the 16th of August at 6.45pm. This was a a character study from the director who made Gloria, um, which I haven't seen but have heard many excellent things about it. This is stars transgender actress Daniela Vega as Marina, 
whose older partner Orlando suddenly dies in the opening scene of the film after a really tender and I found realistic, emotionally realistic depiction of their of an evening together that communicates their relationship and their their honest love for each other. So it's real. It's um, and then sort of it's a beautiful opening, and then it goes on to depict Marina's struggle getting the family to acknowledge her, the family being Orlando's ex-wife and son, um, and to get the police to acknowledge her as who she is in their investigation of Orlando's death. At first, it's this really delicate and heartbreaking film about her and her struggles so she goes to the police station and when she gives her id she says it's it's not official yet it's not legally processed i think she's referring to um becoming a a transgender woman so the policeman starts to call her sir Mm -hmm. instead of ma'am which he was before and that's just a really awful thing so there's Um, All sorts of sort of little awful moments like this that give a really nuanced portrait, I suppose, of of her, you know, day-to-day life, um, which becomes, I suppose, emphasised in this really horrific part of her life where her partner died. Um, And then I feel like it does, so it goes on and depicts the ex-wife and the son as these horrific people who try and attack the memory of marina in his life and uh, attack orlando himself for who he you know became so to speak um and it gets a little i don't know a little melodramatic or something like a little um over pronounced some of these moments have you know kind of been shown before in other movies and i found that those little moments like the one mentioned earlier are the most powerful in this film but there are a couple of really excellent sequences where marina just sort of says fuck it and she just has to you know, do what she wants and go all out there to to find her way in her place and like to kind of take her place in the world, I suppose, and really make people listen to her. And they're really fun. So, I mean, Daniela Vega is great. She's great. And the film is is definitely worth it. And a really like great portrait, I suppose, of of this woman. I love a good liberation on screen. <laughs> well, yeah, there are like at least two. Okay, good. Of those sequences. Do they involve dancing? Yes, yes. Even better. Brilliant. I'm there. Okay, cool. Faut fabriquer des races qui peuvent plus crier, comme les poissons ou les autruches. Si on fabriquait une race propre, silencieuse et qui résistait pas, on nous regarderait autrement. God's Own Country, which struck me partly because of the way in which animals are used and represented in the film, there are two other films I've seen at the festival which have really interesting connections with animals and which use animals as their subject matter. The first is a hybrid docu-fiction film called Still Life by Maud Alpey, who won Best First Film at 2016 Locarno for this film which she made and this is a film which was shot at an at an abattoir it's French film um and I think I went in expecting it to be more of a straightforward documentary but it sits in this really interesting zone 
where she cast an amateur actor, Virgil Hanrot, who plays a character. I'm sorry, that's Vir- Virgil Hanrot, it would be. Uh, he plays a character whose name is also Virgil, and obviously there's a reference there to Dante and the Inferno, and he has a best friend who is a dog named Boston, and he works at the slaughterhouse, and his main job is to basically herd the animals into the chutes that will carry them through to the killing floor. So there is, it, you know, it's a hard film to watch like most films about these subject matters are, but there isn't a whole lot of explicit animal slaughter that happens in the film. The film is called, well, the English translation of the film is Still Life and really what you see a lot of the time is the last moments of these animals' lives while they're still alive. But the film also moves away from the abattoir fairly frequently and you see his home life as well and his relationship with his dog. So one of the things that the film explores without ever being didactic about it is the way in which we have such such contradictory relationships with animals. We lavish attention and love on our pets and then we slaughter various other animals. And I believe that this film was made through actually using this performer and there's maybe one or two other kind of human characters that we see in the film and over the three or four week shoot of this film they all were required to work at the slaughterhouse as actual workers so you see them doing you know you see them doing the job of actual workers at the abattoir and all of that footage is real um and then there's all these interesting sequences that are shot from the perspective of the dog itself as if through the dog's eyes and you and the i guess the dog as well as virgil being this kind of Dante-esque guide through the underworld of the abattoir the dog also becomes something of that as well and you know again we can kind of think about um, various mythical versions of the dog like Cerberus who again is this kind of underworld guide it's it's a really it's a really smart film um, really in in an odd way really gentle despite its subject matter um, I was really struck by it and if it surfaces again at Acme or something it would I think be really worth seeing. And the other film which I thought was really striking in its both in its use of animals and as a piece of filmmaking is the final film by the late great Abbas Kiryastami, uh, 24 Frames, uh, which is a film that explores that very notion. It is strictly divided into 24 sections, each of which is subtitled from one through the through to 24 each section is based on a still image mainly photographs but also some paintings and then he does various things with those still images to extend them so there's animation um yeah it's a really interesting mixture of kind of animation and live footage it's very still it's non-narrative it had a screening at Cannes this year there were a lot of walkouts from the session at Acme it's a film with no dialogue no plot no narrative but if you're willing to go with it, I found it really meditative and it begins with Bruegel's The Hunters in the Snow and returns again and again to the motifs of that painting in its various journey through 24 frames. So over and over again, we get snow, we get birds, we get cattle. I thought it was beautiful and I've spoken to a few other people who also thought it was beautiful, but I also have a fairly high tolerance for extremely non-narrative, slow filmmaking. So if that's not your thing, maybe don't see it. But 
I thought it was fantastic. And when I'm seeing it on Sunday uh, at one thirty. Oh, it's screening again. Screening. Oh my god, I'm so there. <laughs> Eloise, thank you. You've just made my week. I believe we've just made the podcast. It ain't we no have. podcast without we Anders have. screaming something. <laughs> yeah. So. And there is also talking of extremely still meditative documentaries, there is also one final screening at one forty five PM on Sunday twentieth of August of Sergei Loznista's film Austerlitz, which mm. is really, again, really smart documentary, non-narrative, experimental documentary about Holocaust tourist sites. It was mainly filmed at uh, Sachsenhausen concentration camp, which is just outside of Berlin. I'm not sure how to explain the film, and I'm not sure if I should because we're probably out of time. Oh, no, no, please do. I mean, it's a shame because that is on standby list. That's already sold out the last oh, screen. Oh, it's on I standby. I would love to get on the, that uh, list. I have a screener for it, but I've been told that it's not um, yeah. it's, it's it's one for the cinema it because is. it's one that, that I suppose perhaps almost encourages you to look away or walk away. So yes. if you're watching it on your computer, it I, I would no doubt fall um, victim to, to that. Um, so I think a cinema, perhaps, perhaps we can hope that Acme or something will, yes. will do something like this with a, a film. It sounds like an important one, anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's and and I think it is one that unless you watch it in a, at a cinema, you would be tempted to wander off. And in an interesting way, that's partly what the film is about. You know, it's it's about the way in which we fail to engage or not fail to engage but engage in all kinds of perhaps seemingly inappropriate ways with sites like this but again a bit like still life the film is never didactic it never uh, it never kind of puts forward one argument or the other it's filmed with um, fixed frames there's a real ambiguity about whether or not the people who are being filmed know that the camera is there. There were lots of moments in the film when I thought that they knew that they were being filmed, but then I wasn't sure. And of course everyone is busy photographing each other. And, Mm. you know, it's a film about the process of being, of witnessing and of being watched. It's really well done. He also has another film at MIF, which is A Gentle Creature, which is not documentary, but drama. And that is also screening again on the 20th, at 4 p.m. and that from what I have heard I haven't seen it yet is a very kind of Dostoevskyan epic tale of a woman kind of lost in the Russian prison system so quite different films but Austerlitz is really really well done Uh, the film of all the films I've seen at MIF so far it's probably the one that's kind of stayed most in my mind because it's very Mm. it's it's provocative but not in the sense of you know trying to make its point obviously but provocative in the sense of really making you think about the very very complicated issues to do with how we how we represent and how we remember the holocaust well thank you very much and that makes that you've uh, listened right through to the end of our second dispatch from MIF 2017 Um, you can follow us on the cultural capital podcast on facebook or on twitter we're at the cult cap pod you can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. I'm at Eloise Lowe Ross. And we're very grateful. Thank you very much. <laughs>